artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hi everyone, welcome back. This is episode 5 and this is the second half of the interview with science fiction authors Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens. They've been in science fiction for over 30 years, writing novels and screenwriting, primarily in the Star Trek universe. They've written novels in that universe, such as Memory Prime, which takes place in the original series era, one of my favorite stories. It's about Kirk and it features an artificial intelligence. They were screenwriters for the series Star Trek Enterprise and had producer credits on that. If you know where to look, you can even see them on the screen in one of the episodes. They won the Constellation Award for creating the series Primeval New World. But they've not done just fiction. They've also helped Disney design theme park rides. They've even helped NASA with visioning their future goals through a space policy workshop. And that was one of the things we talked about on the last episode, along with their experiences as writers in the Star Trek universe on television, and what it's like writing during a pandemic. We talked about their experience of science fiction and its role in predicting the future, telling stories and particularly about artificial intelligences and some of their thoughts about what those might turn out like. They're credited together, they work together, they live together, and they speak together. You can hear this incredible back and forth between them finishing each other's sentences as they respond to the questions and the discussion that we're having. Now, of course, science fiction writers primarily write to tell a good story, to entertain us. But what other functions does science fiction serve in our society? It occurs to me that science fiction is the goal-setting engine for the human race. Now, let me explain by analogy with my business and experience as a coach. People come to coaching generally with a goal, and they want to get to it, and something's in their way. That dynamic writ large, of course, is the story of the whole human race. But where do goals come from? What is the creation engine of goals with people? If someone comes to a coaching session without a goal, then we usually look to their complaints. What's wrong? Let's start with that. Well, such and such a situation is bothering me. Okay, what would the opposite of that be? That usually turns out to be the goal or a good start at it. Similarly, a lot of what we try to do as a species is driven by these Reactive goals. What don't we want to happen? We don't want our world to burn up under heat generated from a greenhouse effect. We don't want to choke on our own pollutants. We don't want to wipe ourselves out in a global war. When we turn those around, we establish some noble goals and institutions for addressing those things. But what about the other kind of goals? The goals that pull you forward towards something that hasn't happened yet. Those just come out of nowhere. Those are a function of pure creation. And when I talked with Judy and Gar, we got into creativity and what science fiction can do to help stimulate 
that for you. So what is it that precedes the creation of one of those kind of goals that pulls you towards something that hasn't happened yet? I'm going to suggest that science fiction is one of the things that pulls humanity towards that future by virtue of its imagination. It's not about getting away from something we don't want. It's about going towards something that we do. Now, science fiction is fiction that's not constrained by current scientific reality. But it has to be plausible. It has to be a universe that could happen. If it's a universe we know is impossible, then that's not science fiction. That's fantasy. I'm touching here on a topic that gets science fiction fans all riled up. They love to argue about it. They've been doing that forever. And that's great. Have at it in the comments, guys. But to take an obvious example of fantasy, for instance, as much as you might like Lord of the Rings and want to hang out with Frodo and Gandalf and Bilbo, you in your heart know that's not in our future. That's an alternate universe. It's not going to happen no matter how hard we try. But science fiction can look at things that could happen. Star Trek is a universe that most of us would really like to have happen. And aside from usual arguments about violating the speed of light, then there's nothing to say that it couldn't happen. Of course, a lot of scientists have been working really hard on that thing about violating the law of the speed of light. Look up the Alcubio warp drive to see how much we're really working at making Star Trek happen. And you know, so many of the people at NASA and SpaceX and other places that are working hard on those kinds of projects in space are there because they were inspired by Star Trek or Heinlein or Asimov or Clark or some other outlet of science fiction that painted a picture of a future that didn't exist. Now, just think for a moment about the commitment and the vision of these people, scientists and engineers who are doing that, who are working towards creating a future that they know they will not live to see that their children may not live to see, that maybe their children's children will get to see it. That's what drives these people to do what they do, one little step at a time, one new robot on Mars at a time, one new satellite exploring Jupiter at a time. Yes, some people in this field are also there because they're driven by what they want to not happen. We're now in an era where we can see how the human race might cease to exist, either by some external event of a kind that has happened before or at our own hands. Now, by and large, most people in the world do not go to work thinking about how they can create a backup of the human race that will survive a planetary destruction. Unless you work for Elon Musk, in which case you probably do. But in either case, whether you're working towards something that you want or working to avoid something you don't, it's science fiction that beats within the hearts of the people who are pushing this as hard as they can. So I'd like to suggest that when it comes to the whole human race and our long-term goals, that it is science fiction, among other influences, but science fiction as a key influence, that creates those visions, that sources those goals. How far or how fast would we have gotten in the race to the moon if Jules Verne hadn't envisaged that a hundred years earlier? So maybe science fiction writers are like the quirky, eccentric, basement boffins, the research and development department of the human race, working to brainstorm all kinds of weird and wonderful futures so we can pick the best among them. In any case, disruption, which we're facing a lot of at the moment, is what happens when the future arrives faster than we anticipated. And so we'd better start getting better at anticipating that future. 
Who better to help us with that than people whose job is to transport themselves into all manner of weird, wonderful, scary, and fantastic futures? So without further ado, let's get on with part two of the interview with Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens. In the process of, of writing for Hollywood and, and being in that, that domain, I mean, you, you were right there. I saw the, the last episode of Star Trek Enterprise and you were in the last scene sitting in the back row of <laughs> yes. the, uh, the, the Federation Hall. So you're right in the middle of all of that with your teamwork there and what were some of the incidents where that tested you or grew you that that you learned from well one of one of my favorite incidents was we were uh we had a tour of um houston space the mission control while they were doing a simulated uh, shuttle mission and the simulated show, we were talking to the uh, engineers there, and we started talking about uh, a shuttle rescue mission. And the engineer told us about, oh yeah, no, they they had already plans for that. You know, if it, they had done you know blue sky planning and how they would fly the uh, two shuttles sort of tail to tail and uh, transfer people uh, in central. Uh, yes, yes, central. Yes. And uh, so they worked it out. And, um, and we thought, oh, listen, it was just an image that stayed with us. And then uh, we were writing for Enterprise, and uh, there was an opportunity where we had to transfer trip at warp from one ship to another. And so um, we thought, well, we'll just do that. Couldn't use the transport at warp back yes. then. So we wrote a version of that scene where two starships, two NX-01 and NX-02, yes. uh, had to fly that close to each yes. other and transfer trip. But we knew it was going to be expensive. So we thought, okay, with the existing sets we have, how do we write this? And we wrote it in such a way that it'd be very easy to film on the interior. And we turned in that script and one of the producers read that scene and said, well, this is tremendous. We got to make it bigger. And so he <laughs> yes. rewrote the scene. So the dialogue and the action was all the same, but it was it now was in a bigger set. And there was more special stuff. And we read it and we thought, well, this is just wonderful. This is great. This is somebody who really knows the show and that. And of course, by the time the scene came to be filmed and edited and everything, they couldn't afford it. And they brought it back much closer to what we had originally written. Okay. So yes. that was a, an odd experience. So, you know, everybody, everybody tries their best. Everybody wants to do the best, but the, at the end result is uh, time and money. So that's a big constraint. Actually talking about the shuttle, they reminded me of a, a novel by Lee Corey called Shuttle Down um, that he wrote in, I think the 80s about a hypothetical space shuttle launch from West Coast Vandenberg. And they had a main engine cut off about a minute into the, the flight and they had to abort. And the only place that was within landing range was Easter Island, whose runway was too short. And uh, they had a primitive control tower there. And the story then revolved around how to get them off that and the fact that they landed without passports. So they were technically illegal immigrants and all of these things. And the interesting thing about this is that he had actually taken this idea to NASA beforehand and saying, isn't this possible? And they didn't answer him. And sometime after this, I think someone in Congress read the story and said to NASA, 
this is science fiction, right? Couldn't possibly happen. And NASA had to say, well, actually, it's all quite possible. If you had a main engine cut off at that point in the flight, exactly this would happen. And no, we haven't planned any of this. And so they went and made sure that the astronauts were carrying passports and they upgraded the runway on Easter Island and never <laughs> actually flew a shuttle off of the West Coast um, anyway. Those things... I yeah, don't think we've had that kind of impact, though, right. in no, real life. I remember one of the f uh, a flight simulator for the shuttle, one of the first ones they made, the, uh, based all on the technical constraints of the shuttle, and they were showing it off to the engineers at, uh, at uh, NASA. And one of the scenarios they built in was that the main engine doesn't ignite to bring them back home. And there was a way to do it by firing all the maneuvering thrusters in a particular sequence. And the uh, engineer said, well, no, you can't do that. And the guys who made the simulator said, well, according to all your statistics, you can. And NASA checked it out, and it was an actual possibility. So that became something that the astronauts were, were trained in. And was a, this is the interesting thing. It ties in with AI, mm -hmm. right? Things get so complicated we don't see how all the pieces actually work together. And so we can't predict the uh, outcome of certain events. And that to us, I think, getting back to AI is something that is the most worrisome part yes. of AI. We don't know how, they, how it's going to do what we think we want it to do. And, and how they will achieve the decision that mm -hmm. they have made. We won't necessarily know the steps that they have taken. and that. That is worrisome. It's a big issue in the in the field right now of explainability. Mm -hmm. And are you thinking there about artificial intelligences that are much more intelligent than we are? Differently Different. intelligent. Different. Um, again, the whole idea of you know trying to recreate a human mind without biology driving it is um, you know does that mean we create a sociopathic uh, intelligence? Um, we were thinking that the intelligence we should be creating is the intelligence of a dog because built into the dog's genes uh, <laughs> after, you know, hundreds of thousands of years is that they love human beings. And, uh, you know, they've done the, they've done the blood tests on dogs and the, what is it, the oxytocin, the uh, love hormone. When a dog sees his or her owner and just they are actually in love with us and won't harm us. And it would be great to figure out a way to build in a dog algorithm to artificial intelligence. So whatever it does... With our luck, it will be a cat. It will be a cat, right. <laughs> That's right. But just the, the sense that it will be the Asimov, uh, the three laws, where a robot will not, through action or inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Mm. And, and, and yet all his stories were about ways in which those laws failed or <laughs> uh, were exploited. I was... Speaking to a conference of motivational speakers once, uh, New Age writers, and gave them an exercise where I said, imagine that artificial superintelligence is developing right in front of your eyes. You are in the room as this thing wakes up and says, hello, who are you? And you have the good fortune to be there and address it in, the, in a conversation before its recursive self-improvement takes it beyond the point of being interested in that conversation with us any longer. And let's say you have five minutes. How do you 
teach something that's never been human what the best part of being human is, what it means to be human. I wonder what you would do with that exercise. What would you do in the same circumstances? Uh, pull the plug. No, that doesn't always work. I think you've seen some cases where that doesn't work. I think it would be independent of the plug. Yeah, it, you know, personally, and we've discussed this, we've written about this, humans are species in transition. And, you know, 10,000 years from now, whatever has left the planet Earth to go to other star systems, you know, probably won't be human, but they will be in some way descendants. They'll be augmented, they'll be a biology, silicon, what have you. But, you know, we're just a moment in time. And I think if we're watching the super intelligence surpass us in five minutes, I think it's more you you give them a, a postcard, you give them a memento of this is where you came from. And, you know, remember. And, um, but that's about all we can do. Well, there are more than a few speeches by Kirk and Picard uh, basically amounting to humanity is worth saving it's worth keeping around here's why it, it would be nice if if, if that mm-hmm. happened i don't know i feel we're just going to be launching something right and and it's going to it's going to take its own path and i hope we're smart enough to be able to understand the path it's taking right so how, how did you get into this was there a, a defining moment where you woke up and said oh i'm going to be a science fiction writer gosh we were always we readers. Always readers. Always readers. And when we realized that somebody actually wrote the books that we read, uh, we both headed that direction. And there's there's a tremendous amount of room in science fiction. Yeah. You're not you're not fettered. It doesn't mean you're not fettered by by science. We we rather like being fettered by science. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we never really wanted to just describe the world around us. We always wanted to do the world as it could be. Well, the very first thing we wrote together as a team was a science and textbook series for kids, mm-hmm. uh, grades one to three. Science Around Me. And, um, and we spent a couple of years on that, and we talked to ministries of education across Canada and uh, taught classes and uh, put it together. And that's when we knew we enjoyed working together and writing together. Mm -hmm. Uh, But boy, was it exhausting. And, um, you know, the politics and the salesmanship that went into that, we thought, well, we have to write something that's fun. And uh, I had written a couple of techno horror novels at that point. And I remember we were talking language arts. And we thought, well, let's, let's write science fiction. And uh, Star Trek Memory Prime was the first science fiction book we wrote together. And it just took off from there. What a great start. If there's someone listening who's maybe not into science fiction right now, but is thinking, you know what, I could use a jumpstart of my creativity. Uh, I, I need to be thinking outside of the box more because the box has just flattened me right now. And, and, and I need to escape it. Science fiction is nothing if not escapist. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest as exercises or things to consume intellectually that would promote a more creative way of thinking? I I would think that if you were reading a story and the best 
the best contacts that are developed in the story make mm -hmm. you wonder what's around the corner. Mm -hmm. uh, what's in the room that you didn't see? Mm -hmm. uh, what happened when that character left the scene? And that might catch her to tell the story that's, that was buried in that, that film or that book, but wasn't told. And we've often found found our ideas developed that way. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in some of the uh, Star Trek novels we've written, we've specifically started, you know, with a page that's right from the television series, or right, you know, this these are the characters in the room talking. You saw this, and then where the television series cut away to something else, we continued the conversation. Or in. we began it before they even entered the scene, yeah. so that where had they come from? And that was interesting when we were reading mm -hmm. the book. You want to know what actors do, yeah. uh, because that's that's a magic land to us. And Sandy Meisner had that book on acting. Yes, and it was that to prep for a role, mm -hmm. it would be before the actor walks onto the scene, they should know where they're coming from, and when they leave it, they should know where they're going. And that might not be information that we would put into the script, but so it's something the yeah. the actor has to. And the best create. films, like the production designers, are wonderful. So mm -hmm. something like Blade Runner, yeah, when it went on. You you knew if you walked around the corner, you mm -hmm. had a feeling of what you might see or you hoped you'd see, and those are we often get we often get story ideas from that. And for an exercise, I know everybody talks about binging television series, and um, for me, I don't like to do that. I like to uh, you know watch the episode two at most and think about it. Think about it. Figure out how did we get there, and then try and anticipate what's going to happen next. And for a creative exercise, just something very simple to do is watch half of an episode. Stop and actually think about, actually write down words of, you know, is the guy going to succeed in hijacking the spaceship? Is the uh, woman going to succeed in getting her boyfriend back? Something like that. And try and anticipate how you go about doing that. And that's a way of showing you what it's like when you're writing a story, mm -hmm. is that you started out, but you don't know where it's going to go necessarily. You might know what you hope is going to be the end of it, mm -hmm. but how you get there is that, is that same process, mm -hmm. is you sit down and you're trying to figure out who knew what, when, what happened to them, what is going to change the way that they anticipate, you know, like what, what's the reaction going to be to, mm -hmm. to whatever you're planning for them. Uh, that that is a way to slow you down, and if you're binging, mm -hmm. you yeah, lose, you lose out on that. And the you know as a as a writing technique, uh, so you you can't go wrong with the number one rule, which is what happens next. Well, what's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> well, that then is, make that happen and we, figure a way out of it. That's sort of perils of Pauline. We, yeah. we tend to do that. It's one of, one and, of the, and and the best ones you watch too are yeah. you thinking like. How in the world are they mm. going to get beyond this episode? Yeah. What 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 is going to happen next? What can happen now? Haven't they done everything they could do to these mm. people? One one of my favorite scenes of all time in science fiction is The Empire Strikes Back, and uh, Luke has been captured. He's on the gangplank. His hands are tied. <laughs> He's about to be forced into the pit of Sarlacc, and he looks across the the void and he says to Jabba, Jabba, I'll give you one last chance. <laughs> That's a, he's going to get out of it, and you have no idea how. A lot of people probably thinking right now, the worst seems to have happened with the change in the world right now with the, the crisis. 
is it impelling you to write about or think about disruption more? Does it drive your thoughts more towards any level of, po- of apocalyptic thinking? I think it actually is more like we're seeing all sorts of compassion come, mm-hmm. come to the fore where people are looking towards the homeless, looking towards the way the elderly are cared for, mm-hmm. looking towards families that, that require more childcare. There's all sorts of social issues that people haven't had much time for. Mm-hmm. And suddenly there seems to be the coordinated support for change. And, and that's, that's a very positive thing coming out of this. Mm-hmm. The, on, the, on the more frightening side, we're working on a, a project now that takes place during the Cold War. So we've been looking at some of the uh, the warning, the, the the I guess public service announcements, the short films that were made about how to survive a nuclear strike on Canada, and it's so chilling because they're offering, this is how first responders go. This is the dead zone around an impact. You know, this is what people will be like. This is how we have to treat them, the triage and that. And you realize this is stuff from the fifties. They had no concept of what it would actually be like. And just, so we've got disruption going on from a virus, which is horrible. But it's nothing like what would happen if uh, something with a 50% fatality rate got loose. What if a dirty mm-hmm. bomb went off? What if there's what it, this disruption is teaching us is that we're not prepared for the really big thing. And apparently, there is an asteroid heading for us right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, if anyone would know, if. AI is to compete with us in some way, and, and in some ways it already is. It's automating jobs, and, and so we can expect more of that to happen. Where do you see that trend going, and how should we feel about, let's say, competition? Most people day-to-day don't think about their identity being threatened by machines. They don't see themselves as John Henry. They haven't thought about it, but you think about those kinds of developments how, sh- how should we develop our, our thinking and our preparation for competition from machines? That's a big question. That is a big question. In The Expanse, the science fiction series I mentioned earlier, about 200 years in the future, the unemployment rate on Earth is about 50%, simply because everything is automated. And, and, and that helps inspire people to move off planet and try and get to Mars and the asteroids. The idea of almost anything menial or um, uh, repetitive, any task, is going to be taken over by AI and robotics. Or dangerous. Because you can see right now with the virus Mm -hmm. that a lot of factories Mm -hmm. would do better if they were robotic. And uh, the idea of such mass unemployment, well, it's something we're facing now. Uh, How does society cope with that? That you know, not being a social engineer, I, it would be interesting to see if AI could come up with a solution for that. But then the frightening thing is that, you know, we, we think of a scenario where you say to the AI as a financial consultant, you know, how do we how do we get more money to people? And the AI thinks, well, if I cause a weaponized virus to escape from a lab, everybody gets twelve hundred dollars. So it makes makes sense to the AI, but it's devastating to us. If AI started writing science fiction stories, what would you do? <laughs> uh, probably buy them. Um, 
Let's see. We'll be reading them with interest. Yeah. Right. Trying to think though, what that one there is a good task for an AI. How would you build an algorithm to get it to try and predict future society movements like psychohistory, you know, as most I'm sure someone's going to be setting that problem right. before one. Right. And that that of course is the whole concept behind Westworld this season. That the uh, super supercomputer, Rio Boehm, uh, it basically worked out the world lines of everybody on Earth. And it, and it was the robots, the artificial intelligences, um, that uh, became anomalies because it hadn't predicted them and couldn't predict their actions. Who has been your greatest influences? Uh, well, Gene Roddenberry in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. um, Stephen King, simply Stephen for... King. Yeah. Stephen King's great technique yeah. is that he creates absolutely real characters, absolutely real settings. And then when he brings in the unreal element, it's cloaked in reality. So you can, you can picture the, the vampire. You can picture the supernatural creature. That's um, one kind. Dean Koontz always has hidden stories, mm -hmm. uh, stories he hasn't told around the corner mm -hmm. uh, in, in his books. And uh, there are so many science fiction writers that have mm -hmm. caught our attention. I think like we love Nine Princes and Amber. Mm -hmm. We love there. There are fanciful ones too that have no connection. Or we've got an Alfred Bester. Oh yes. Or or Andre Norton. Mm -hmm. Or and they're just throwing out ideas so fast that I think they never get past first draft mm -hmm. uh, when they write. Alfred Bester definitely. Alfred Bester just is packed with ideas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, we're omnivorous, but we tend not to not to read stories about dysfunctional families <laughs> yeah. or about contemporary yeah. reality. It, it is, we like people that, are, and, and also when you think of uh, even, um, you know, stories like The Ghosts of Mars and mm -hmm. it just, Bradbury, Ray Bradbury, these, this is a different kind. They're the lyrical ones, the technical ones, people like mm. Baxter with huge ideas yeah. or Clark. There have been a lot of, the big ideas, I think, are the most inspiring ones. Hmm. People like Clark and Baxter. Listening to you, I think my original thesis of the hive mind has been proved out in the way that you're finishing each other's sentences here. Hmm. When we were at Enterprise, they, they did call us the binars. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a, a, a sister field of artificial intelligence is brain-machine interfaces. Mm -hmm. which looked like they were much further off in the future until some recent developments, most publicly Elon Musk founding Neuralink and saying that he'll have something within a few years. And what sort of potential is there for the change to, to us as a species if we had a device that could read or write our thoughts? which is definitely coming. I think that's just a matter of engineering now. Um, the, the terrible thing is, though, it's going to be a great aid for people who are somehow disabled, uh, where they can more directly, you know, become roboticized themselves, move around. But then the danger is that thoughts can come into your head that aren't necessarily your own, but you have no awareness that those thoughts have come in. And then you get into the real science fiction premises of uh, 
you're living in a virtual reality world. What if the thoughts aren't your own? What if, Judith, the thoughts are Garfield's? And that would be all right, would it? If we knew. If we knew, if we knew. But if, uh, if you know, it's like the experiments with the cockroaches and they can make the cockroach decide to walk to the right or walk to the left. And I don't think the, the, the cockroach is aware that anything is driving it to do that. But then biology drives us to do those things too. So it's a really, it's a tough philosophical question. But I think the idea would be is, okay, we've become a new species. We've become transhuman. And uh, at what point is there a divide between, there are now two species of sentience on the planet, the transhuman augmented uh, species and the un, unadulterated human. And to a large extent, many of us are inseparable from our smartphones already. Yes. Suppose one of those mind-reading slash writing devices was hooked up to each of you and and went into pass-through mode, and now you can read each other's thoughts. Mm -hmm. What would that mean for your writing career? Lose the privacy of your brain. Lose the privacy of your brain. Yeah. That would be... That's that's always a worst-case scenario in science fiction. And also, what would, what would entertainment be at that period? We always ask ourselves, well, at the time of Star Trek, with space travel, time travel, aliens, that are, do they still have science fiction? Hmm. Or is everything just fiction? If you could, if you, oh man. But yeah. privacy issues, mm-hmm. we're, we're beginning to see that now mm-hmm. with, with increased intrusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time mm-hmm. it gets right into your thoughts, then you're into it mm-hmm. for them. Um, Clark and Baxter collaborated on a fascinating book, Light of Other Days, and uh, the technology in it eventually became a point where anybody anywhere could open a wormhole to any place or any time and observe what happened. And the concept of privacy completely vanished. You could look at anything, anytime, anywhere, uh, and they, we got a glimpse of what society was like about 10 years later. And that's, a, that's difficult for us to conceive mm-hmm. of the impact that would have. And what would we be like? All right. of these big changes coming or potential. And if only there was so much more time available to talk about them, but we're coming up on the, the end of the show here. Tell us about your latest projects. I think you've got a new novel out called Wraith. Tell us about that and anything else that you, know, you want people to know and where they can find out more about you. Okay, well, Wraith, Wraith was, uh, the pitch on that was ghosts have been weaponized. And entanglement. And entanglement. And what we tried to do, we do this a lot. Sometimes we say, okay, if such a thing is actually true, how is it possible that it's true? I did it with uh, alien abduction, where I wrote Night Eyes. And I said, okay, let's say everything the abductees are saying is true what is the logical scientific thing that could account for it? And uh, we did it with Wraith where we said, okay, ghosts are real. There is an underlying scientific, you know, mm-hmm. reputable, uh, re- repeatable, replicable, re- replicable. Thank you. Yes. Um, experiments we can do and we can prove that ghosts are real. What are the implications of that? And uh, of course the implications of that is that, the government gets involved and surveillance and uh, it becomes a a supernatural science fiction technological conspiracy thriller. 
But the, our latest project, the one coming out in August in the U.S. and September in Canada, <laughs> is that hard-hitting kids movie, from, Aliens Stole My Body. But that, that comes from Bruce Colville's <laughs> children's book series. And two years ago, we, we wrote uh, the screenplay for Aliens Ate My Homework. Yes, there's an escalation to the stealing of the body. It was for Universal. It came out on Netflix. It was a lot of fun because it's just really goofy. Bruce Coville is a great sort of uh, science fiction writer for kids. And uh, and so and that first movie did really well. So and to we take it to the screen was the a sequel. great deal of fun. And, of course, we added things like projectile vomiting and Always. all sorts of things that are very interesting. <laughs> yes, that's right. Two, two kids, I, I understand. Uh, one, one thing that you'd like to be true 100 years from now? Landing on Mars in our lifetime. <laughs> that would, uh, to that see would be, yeah. to see that to see us leave yeah. in a way that we're directed outward yeah and and to you know very eager to see what the results of the first uh, study of microbes on mars is going to be and in mm. the meantime to take care of our own planet yeah couldn't have put it better Thank you so much, Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. It has been an absolute pleasure. I, I hope we have the chance to do this again sometime because it has been entertaining, informative, educational, very above all useful. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you for, thank having, you for us. having us. We've enjoyed it. There you have it, folks. What a treat. Look up their author page on Amazon. I'll put it in the show notes. I have to tell you, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool original series fan with a capital fanatic, and they recreated those characters so well in their novels that I felt I was watching new episodes in my head. That's a real gift. By the way, if you didn't understand their reference to Binars, those were a race of aliens in Star Trek The Next Generation from the episode 11001001. And they always went in pairs. They were inseparable. They complemented each other, finished each other's sentences. I'd say their fellow writers had Judy and Gar pegged all right. I think we need the kind of mind expansion they gave us, especially right now. One thing that's certain to emerge from this current crisis is that we will see a massive sudden expansion in technology. It always happens at periods of great stress and crisis. Obviously, it will be mostly in medicine, and may I say, that is way overdue, but also in adjacent fields, and especially in computing, which brings us back to artificial intelligence. And you. Just to take a few examples from today's headlines about how we're heading that way, in a collaboration between Google Brain, Intel Corporation, and the University of California, Berkeley, researchers have trained robots to mimic surgical procedures through the use of instructional videos. By watching only 78 instructional medical videos, a robot was trained to perform a suturing procedure. That's pretty impressive for the small size of the dataset because usually neural networks need huge numbers of examples to learn from. And researchers at the University of Liverpool have built a robot that can carry out chemistry experiments 21 and a half hours out of every day, almost as much as your average grad student, and it weighs 400 kilograms and can think in 10 dimensions. It decides what experiments to conduct and with no guidance from the research team already found a catalyst 
that was six times as active as previous ones. On next week's episode, I will be talking with Ryan Darcy. He has seen naked brains in person while they were still in use. He is a neuroscientist working on the cutting edge of understanding and fixing broken brains. We met when he was a fellow speaker at my last TEDx event, and his story was about Trevor Green, a soldier in Afghanistan who had an axe sunk into his head. You've heard the saying, I need that like I need a hole in the head? That's what Trevor had. Now, everyone else had given up on him, told his wife he'd be a vegetable. Ryan called his wife and said, I think I can help. And if you want to see the result, you can judge for yourself by watching his TEDx talk because Trevor was on the stage with him as his co-speaker. If we want to understand AI, we have to understand ourselves. Firstly, because in creating artificial general intelligence, we might need to know how humans do that in order to figure out how to do it with computers. It's not easy. Secondly, because when artificial general intelligence becomes a thing in this world, we will be driven to question who we are and what makes us unique. Getting a head start on that might be a good thing. Until next time, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.